Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Program number 7913. Three shows, Three Mile Island, the week of March 26, 1979. Welcome back to Retrogram, a podcast from thelogbook.com where we dive feet first into the past, swim around the primetime schedules of yesteryear, soaking up all the sci-fi, fantasy, superhero, spy-fi, and horror TV of the past, and wring them out all over the concrete. So first off, watch your step. And second, we're going to see if these shows have aged well, unlike my swimming pool metaphor, which is really just all about how much I miss going swimming. March of 1979 was a pretty busy month. Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, opened on Broadway. Voyager 1 had made its closest pass to Jupiter and discovered that the planet had rings and its moon Io had violently active volcanoes. Philips Electronics held the first public demonstration of a new optical storage medium called a compact disc. I wonder if that ever caught on. The soft drink Mellow Yellow was introduced, C-SPAN signed on for the first time, a peace treaty between Egypt and Israel was signed, and the movie The China Syndrome premiered. That last bit was either great timing for topicality, or lousy timing for taste, because on the morning of Wednesday, March 28th, there was a partial meltdown at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania. This remains the most serious nuclear accident in American history, and let's all hope it holds that record forever. Even more soberingly, though, Three Mile Island still isn't the largest unplanned radiological release in U.S. history, a record held by a dam breach at a uranium mill in Church Rock, New Mexico, in July of 1979. Another record that really needs to stand forever because the thought of something exceeding that is, frankly, horrifying. Yikes. On a lighter note, let's see what was on the tube to distract us from what probably seemed like impending nuclear disaster at the time. Blake 7, Season 2, Episode 12, The Keeper, aired Tuesday, March 27, 1979, on BBC One. The story so far. It is the third century of the second calendar in Earth's distant future. The Terran Federation rules over Earth and its outlying human colonies on other worlds with an iron fist. A rebellion is being led by Raj Blake, who recruited a few fellow convicts bound for the prison planet Cygnus Alpha, and commandeered a drifting alien starship which became known as the Liberator. 
Blake has become obsessed with finding the Federation's central computer control complex, codenamed Star-1, believing that destroying it will bring the Federation's rule to an end and restore freedom to Earth and its colonies on other worlds. But they're also aware that the Federation's cold, calculating Supreme Commander Servalan and the dangerously unstable, disgraced Space Commander Travis are also seeking Star-1 for their own ends, which probably aren't any healthier for the Federation than what Blake has in mind. The Keeper A series of recent clues have led Blake to the planet Goth, home of a primitive enclave of humans who have regressed into feudalism. Still, it is supposedly where a neurosurgeon named Lurgan stashed a brain print containing the location of Star One, a brain print that's supposedly being worn around the neck of a member of Goth's royal family. Blake is prepping for a mission to the surface of Goth to look for this final clue, but the ever-cynical Avon is trying to convince not so much Blake as everyone else in the crew that their aim should be to seize control of Star One and install themselves as the new leaders of the Federation. But Blake points out that that kind of power would corrupt anyone. In the meantime, that's Step Z, and they're still at about Step O or Step P, finding the brain print. The atmosphere of Goth is toxic with prolonged exposure, so the royal family must be hanging out underground. Blake, Jenna, and Villa teleport down, leaving Avon and Callie on the ship. That's when Zen, the Liberator's computer, spots a Federation ship that's recently left the surface of Goth. Certain that this must be Travis's ship, Avon decides that this is a ship that needs blowing up urgently. Callie objects, since leaving orbit will mean that Blake and the others cannot call for emergency teleport if trouble happens, but Avon is totally okay with that. On the surface, Blake, Jenna, and Villa walk into an ambush set by the locals. Jenna is kidnapped and Blake is knocked out, while Villa has the good sense to hide and try to call the Liberator to get them out of trouble. But of course, the Liberator isn't there, and Villa is captured as well. The Liberator sneaks up on Travis's ship, which appears to be sending a transmission somewhere to someone. Avon opens fire at the space equivalent of point-blank range, ensuring that the message is never completed. As the ship explodes, sending its debris splashing through the blackness of space, Avon's ready to strut around the flight deck. I mean, he stops just short of saying, Go, Travis! It's your death day! Callie gets the ship back into orbit, and that's when a panicked call for help from Blake comes through. Since he's the only one who hadn't already been taken underground, he's the only one who can be retrieved. Avon demands to know where Jenna and Villa are. Blake wants to know why the hell the Liberator went off station. Welcome to the planet Goth. Meet the Goths. Gola is the king and his sister Terra over there. She's kind of a witchy soothsayer. He even has a court jester and a court Travis. Wait, what? Oh, crap. Travis's ship got blown up, and he didn't even have the decency to be on it when that happened. And he's awfully chummy with Gola. Clearly, he's been here on Goth for a while, making friends and influencing... friends. That's when Jenna and Villa are brought into the throne room. Awkward! Travis demands to know where Blake is. Well, as long as he's asking, that means Blake isn't a prisoner and might come back to rescue his crewmates. Travis also reveals that Lurgan was here. He performed surgery on Gola. Travis tries to talk Gola into killing them, but upon seeing Jenna, Gola has other plans. Ew. Guess who else is just hanging out on Goth? It's Servalan, just lounging around in her fur coat, eating grapes. 
Travis pulls out a communicator about the size of a small shoebox and tries to summon his ship in orbit. Hmm, static. Liberator probably got it. Servalan and Travis exchange notes. They know that the brain print is hanging around someone's neck, but they don't know who it is any more than the Liberator crew members do. It's got to be Gola or his sister, though, right? Travis needs to go to the surface to contact the ship that Servalan arrived on. When Servalan's ship moves in response to Travis's signal, the Liberator picks up on it. Avon is ready to be two for two today and orders Callie to break orbit. Let's go ship hunting again. But since Blake has returned to Goth and may need help again at a moment's notice, and since Jenna and Villa are in the hands of the Goths because the Liberator wasn't there to bail them out before, Callie stands firm, not doing it this time. On the surface of Goth, Blake goes into hiding when he hears voices. He witnesses a man being brought to the caves in chains. He unholsters his weapon and fires a couple of strategic shots, scaring the man's captors away. Blake introduces himself and discovers that he's just freed Rod, Gola's estranged brother, who is now in his debt. So, there are more members of the royal family than we already knew about. This is getting complicated. Underground, Gola is still ogling Jenna, while also questioning her and Villa as to the reason they're there. But Gola's too distracted by Jenna to keep up an interrogation. Even a couple of magic tricks by Villa convince Gola that he could use a new court jester. Gola has decided he's going to keep both of them around. Jenna will be his queen. Tara wants to question Jenna further, but Jenna's pretty straightforward about what she's looking for. Tara humors her and allows Jenna to look at the amulet hanging from her neck. The brain print isn't there. Jenna returns to the throne room because, as far as she knows, it's got to be on Gola. Making matters worse, Servalan has figured out that Jenna's playing along with this whole barbarian bride-to-be thing and is trying to drive a wedge between her and Gola. But Gola's already smitten. Servalan's just not his type. Blake and Rod have made their way into the caves quietly, but Rod goes scouting ahead and is very firm about wanting Blake to stay put near the dungeon. Blake finds that there's an old man already in one of the cells, and then shortly afterward, Villa is hauled down from the throne room, having been framed by Gola's original jester. Back in the throne room, Jenna acts faint and says there might be something in the wine, a ploy to get the jester thrown into the dungeon and freed Villa from the dungeon. She also gets cuddly with Gola and looks at his amulet, but there's no brain print there either. Tara finds this most amusing. Blake watches as Villa is released from the dungeon, and Gola's jester takes his place next to the old man behind bars. That's when Rod shows up again. He's let his men into the caves from outside. He's ready for Blake to join him. It's time for action. Time for the overthrow of Gola. Rod strides confidently into the throne room and challenges Gola to a duel. Terra predicts Gola's death. Weapons are drawn, and the two brothers are chained together, and the fight begins. It's a messy, brutal fight, one that Gola wins, killing his own brother. Tara hands him a celebratory drink, which turns out to be poison, so Gola dies as well, fulfilling the prophecy. Blake checks the amulet on Rod's body. No brain print! Blake's tired of pussyfooting around and openly asks Tara who's left. She directs them to the old man in the dungeon. The father of Gola, Tara, and Rod, the rightful king, deposed by his own overambitious sons. The interlopers from the Liberator rush downstairs as Tara installs herself on the throne. Ha, it's good to be the queen. 
In the dungeon, Blake asks the old man who the keeper of the brain print is, but the old man is on death's door. The jester, his jester, is singing a funeral dirge. The old man whispers something in Blake's ear just before he breathes his last, and the amulet around the old man's neck? There's a gap where something was, but whatever it was, it's already been taken. The jester says the man with the eye patch took it. Travis has the secret. Blake has nothing. Except the dying king's last words, which Blake repeats aloud. A fool knows everything and nothing. The jester lapses into a trance state and begins reciting the coordinates of Star One. The chase is on. Next stop, Star One? To be continued. This episode of Blake Seven falls almost at the end of the second season, or Series B, as the season is called, with only the shocking season finale left to go. And I'm not being ironic or funny there. The last episode of Blake Seven's second season is a cliffhanger whose impact reverberates forward into a lot of the sci-fi on TV today. I've said it before, but I'll repeat it. Blake Seven is one of those sci-fi shows that had an absolutely seismic impact on how that genre does its thing on the small screen. You can find bits of its DNA in plenty of other British sci-fi, but also in Babylon 5, Farscape, The Expanse, Star Trek Discovery, and numerous other places. Blake Seven was the first live-action sci-fi series in the Western world to try on the notion of season- and series-long story arcs to see if it could make them happen in this medium. Now, to some extent, anime had beaten Blake Seven to the punch, as the early 70s had already seen season-long story arcs in the likes of Space Battleship Yamato and Kagaku Ninja Tai Gachaman, which the English-speaking world got in a vastly watered-down form as Battle of the Planets. But Blake Seven is putting actors in front of a camera to do it, and it's kind of working. What Blake Seven doesn't have on its side is budget. So what shows today do with splashy CGI space battles, Blake has to make do with human character interaction, questions about the loyalties of key characters, and a core cast of regular actors who are able to sell that. However, what was already known at the time this episode aired was that the cast in question was about to undergo some major, major changes. The Keeper, in particular, is a script that arose from a really unusual situation. The second season was intended to have a two-part cliffhanger written by the show's creator, Terry Nation, who then failed to deliver either of the two scripts. Alan Pryor was commissioned to write this script on very short notice, while the series' script editor and now-driving creative force, Chris Boucher, supplied the season finale. Much of the second season had involved Blake's search for the Federation's Central Control Facility, a largely automated complex that governs space traffic, weather on every Federation planet, and presumably handles military data as well. There was even a gotcha episode in the season where Blake thought he found it, but it turned out to be a trap laid by the Federation for anyone like him who might try to find it. Now, Alan Pryor's prior scripts for Blake Seven were not great. In fact, they were maybe kind of lamentable. One of them was Hostage, an episode that I'm going to say a majority of longtime Blake Seven fandom ranks either at or pretty close to the bottom, the absolute nadir of the show's 52 televised episodes. The Keeper is a huge, huge improvement, but it seems pretty clear that Alan Pryor had some help here. The episode's plot and characters borrow quite heavily from King Lear. I mean, really heavily. 
But I guess if you're going to borrow, you might as well borrow from the best. The weakest parts of the story, well, man, look, I'm not trying to spend the whole show hating on Alan Pryor here, but there are parts of the story that he didn't bum off of the bard. The locals make a lot of noise before they attack Blake, Jenna, and Villa, and yet no one draws a weapon even though there's time to do so. Blake fires his gun later, proving that he could have fired the weapon all along, so it's not like the atmosphere is flammable or anything. And let's be clear, this is not like Star Wars or Star Trek, where every energy weapon fired is an expense for the effects department. The Blake 7 Liberator guns were basically flashlights with a transparent prong on top of them, so think of them like giant light-up headphone jacks. Although some fans down through the years have described them in, um more phallic terms. The only thing anyone has to do in post-production is sync up the sound effect that they've been using since season one. Now, let me bring the show to a screeching halt to discuss something that applies to any era of TV or film that's being discussed in a critical manner. I try to deploy the phrase, it's bad writing, very sparingly if I deploy it at all, because I think ultimately what most people mean when they say that is their meaning to say, I would have written it differently. Internet, TV, and film critics listen to me very carefully. You need to learn to use the phrase, I would have made different creative choices, instead of, it's bad writing. Because unless you two are involved in writing on a professional basis, and especially writing non-fiction scripts for television, that's a hell of a claim to make. Hey, here's the thing, I do get paid to write, and even so, that makes me much more likely to say, I would have made different creative choices than it is to make me say, it's bad writing. Alan Pryor has writing credits on over a hundred episodes of Zed Cars, one of the BBC's longest-running police dramas, and you know, I don't think you get asked to come back and do more unless you're good at it in the first place. It might be that he's better at writing cop shows and modern-day drama than science fiction, and he would hardly be the only writer in that category. Look at all these seasoned industry veterans that Star Trek The Next Generation chewed up and spat out because they couldn't get their head around writing within the rules of that particular universe. So I hesitate to say that any of this was necessarily bad writing. Television writing is such a collaborative process that it can break down at any weak point. Maybe getting only a minimal briefing from a producer or script editor, maybe not quite digesting a show's writer's bible, if one exists, and maybe just a lack of genre awareness of what's already been done in the sci-fi realm and what hasn't. So suffice to say, I would have made some different creative choices than the writer of this episode, really in the name of consistency. Because when you get down to that kind of quasi-Shakespearean element of the story, that really works. Those characters have interesting interplay and rivalries and betrayal and treachery going on. Now, speaking of Shakespeare, it's perhaps no coincidence that Genghis Saner, who played Gola's court jester here, played the fool in a 1976 theatrical version of King Lear. Now, I bring this guy up because he gives an absolute knockout performance. There's so much physicality to everything he's doing, even when he's just in the background of a shot. And yet he's also oozing, slimy, conniving cunning the whole time, too. Because he served the original king, he sees the dueling brothers as nothing but pretenders to the throne, 
though no one else in the royal court dares to say that out loud, and you kind of get the impression the fool is scared for his life as well. It is, it is a fascinating performance. When the old king dies in the dungeon and the fool begins singing, you really do get the sense that something horrible has just happened. Life on this benighted planet is now going to get only worse with very little potential for it to get better. Tara is certainly not going to make it any better. And these strangers from space, they're about to bugger off and leave it all to fall into ruin. Tara won't kill this guy, but every male hanger-on in the royal court in an attempt to cozy up to her will probably try to knock the fool off. His lifespan just effectively dropped to somewhere between the next six hours and maybe tomorrow after dinner. And he's mourning not just for the rightful king, but himself. This is three decades before Game of Thrones, and it's on a dystopian space opera on a BBC budget. It's wonderful. There is something kind of interesting going on with the whole situation, whether it's intended by the writers and makers of the show or not. This is not the first time that Blake Seven has presented us with a human-colonized planet that has effectively regressed to medievalism. The series is set in the second century of the third calendar, whatever that means, so it could be a few hundred years in Earth's future, or perhaps thousands. Or maybe somewhere in between. There is a first season episode that kind of foregrounds ancient relics of the 20th century, including a working open-seat roadster, so probably not thousands and thousands of years. Either way, the people on this planet aren't phased by space travelers dropping in to see them, since Lurgan has been there. But do they any longer have their own means of space travel? No, they don't. Do they even necessarily have the knowledge to achieve it? Probably not, since they're fighting with swords and maces. So, what happened? Did their colony get left behind? Or was there some kind of uprising where they threw off the shackles of the Federation and then said, Whoops, wait, we didn't think out a new system of governance to replace the old one, moments before collapsing into feudalism and local corruption. Gola says that his ancestors cared what the Federation thought of them, but he doesn't. Gola is also aware that the Federation offers us nothing but slavery, and yet somehow Gola was able to summon Lurgan there to perform surgery on him for a brain injury that otherwise would have killed him. Which really raises the question, in all of his efforts to go around freeing worlds from the Federation, is Blake offering a new system of governance to replace Federation rule? No. He's not even sticking around to make sure that what takes the place of Federation rule isn't something worse or more corrupt. So are Blake and his crew actually helping anyone? Or are they truly the anarchist terrorists that the Federation has claimed they are all along? Blake 7 is a really complex series that gives you a lot to think about. That is why I love it so much. We'll come back down to Earth in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to such sites as fangirlish.com and popcultureretrorama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of thelogbook.com and its podcasts.
The Incredible Hulk, Season 2, Episode 18, No Escape, aired Friday, March 30th, 1979, on CBS. The story so far. Dr. David Bruce Banner, conducting research into enhancing human strength and abilities, subjected himself to a high dose of gamma radiation, a little too high and for a little too long. Now, when he is angered, when events around him trigger a fight-or-flight response, Banner transforms into the Incredible Hulk, a gigantic, bemuscled green humanoid with astounding strength and a berserker rage over which Banner has no control. When the crisis ends, the Hulk transforms back into Banner, often passing out in the process. The death of a fellow scientist and an explosion at Banner's lab during the Hulk's first appearances means that Banner is assumed to be dead, so he assumes fictitious names and stays on the move, trying to stay ahead of persistent newspaper reporter Jack McGee, the only human being who suspects Banner is still alive and suspects a connection between Banner and the Hulk. No Escape Banner's snoozing on a park bench by the seaside, and there's a tap on his shoulder. Whoops, the local police are doing a homeless sweep, and Banner picked the wrong time to take a nap. They throw him into the back of a vehicle with another man, promising both of them that they can have a shower and a hot meal tonight, so... thanks? Now the man Banner's stuck with is older, bearded, and clearly unwell. He warns Banner that the police are fascists, and then starts talking about how they wiped out a whole village. Uh, dude, what? Then he talks about breaking out of here and meeting up at the Stanford Arms. The next moment he's talking about how his writing career has ended, thanks to his wife and his doctor subjecting him to electroshock therapy, and he vows to kill them in revenge. Okay. This guy is gone. Banner notices that the man's in a patient uniform from the state mental hospital, and now he's having some kind of episode, and he thinks he's Ernest Hemingway. Banner shouts for the officers to come help this guy, but then Hemingway is all over him, trying to kill him. Banner's eyes flash green, and then pretty much the rest of him flashes green, too. The Hulk bursts out of the police vehicle and knocks both it and the officers over. The jolly green giant disappears into the night, and Hemingway busts out, too, kicking in the window of the vehicle and arming himself with a shotgun. The next day, the PIO for the police department briefs reporters at the scene, finding himself staring at some incredulous faces when he mentions that the vehicle was knocked over on its side by a green man at least seven feet tall. But there's one reporter who believes him without hesitation. Guess who? Jack McGee of the National Register is totally buying this story, and he'll be sticking around to see if the Hulk or Banner makes another appearance. The Hulk does make another appearance, at least in a hallucination suffered by the man who would be Hemingway. He clears his head and makes his way to the home of his friend Robert. Robert knows our wandering writer by his real name, Tom Wallace. And Robert knows that the police are looking for Wallace. Apparently a bunch of Tom's things are stashed here in Robert's place. His footlocker, his manual typewriter. And hey, there's some cash in his footlocker. Wallace basically chases Robert out of his own home on a mission to buy Wallace some new clothes. Wallace sits down to write, but then he's having flashbacks. Some of them may not even be his own flashbacks. They may be hallucinations. Then there are flashbacks being strapped down for shock therapy. Tom Wallace is not a well man. Banner, in the meantime, learns from a newspaper who his companion in the police vehicle was, and then remembers Wallace's pledge to kill his wife and his doctor. 
Banner tracks down Mrs. Wallace to warn her, but she's adamant Tom would never hurt anyone, especially not her. Then there's a knock at the door. Another reporter pestering Mrs. Wallace. Oh, it's Jack McGee. And he glimpses Banner through the open door. Banner takes off before Mrs. Wallace can return to continue the conversation. Banner calls Dr. Stanley, who is overseeing Wallace's care, posing as a police detective. And when the electroshock therapy is brought up, Dr. Stanley does some hemming and hawing and says that wouldn't have happened unless it was absolutely certain that it was needed. Then the operator cuts in on the payphone Banner's calling from and gives away the game. He's not calling from the police department. Oops. Back at Robert's place, Tom Wallace has got some more dashing riderly duds. Well, assuming that riders sit around the house in a trench coat with a scarf on. Wallace is starting to scare Robert just a little bit, ranting about how his wife and Dr. Stanley were having an affair and using his hospitalization to put him out of the way. The fact that he's seeing all this while fondling a forty-five is just a wee bit unsettling. Man, why don't you put that thing away before you hurt someone with it? Nope, Wallace is just going to sit there and gaze lovingly at it, talking about how the typewriter is a lot heavier than the gun, but the typewriter takes a lot longer to get results. Okay. Banner's getting desperate that no one's taking his warning seriously, so he takes the risk of calling the police directly to tell them he's the vagrant they had an APB out on who was with Wallace. But all that accomplishes is that they keep him on the phone long enough to establish a trace to the payphone he's using. Banner sees the police car approaching and hides. Mrs. Wallace goes to the park. She sits down on a bench and finds a copy of Hemingway's A Call to Arms sitting there. There's a rambling note inside the book. Watching her from nearby is Tom Wallace, totally inconspicuous in his rider trench coat and a scarf in the middle of the park, and still having hallucinations. While he's doing that, Mrs. Wallace finishes reading the note, gets kind of freaked out, and leaves in a hurry. Then Wallace is hallucinating that the Hulk is running toward him, knocking over palm trees as he goes. Banner has tracked Wallace down to Robert's place, but of course... Wallace is having a little freak-out in the park, so Banner's trying to warn Robert how dangerous his friend is. Robert's not hearing any of it. His friend, the up-and-coming writer, is going to be famous someday. And while his friend is on the up-elevator, Robert's going to be moving on up right alongside him. Before their argument can continue any further, there's Wallace, gun in hand. He thinks Banner is Ramon. He thinks Robert is Roberto. It's safari time, boys. Let's go. Time for some skeet shooting by the lake. And the whole time, Wallace is still ranting about his wife and his psychiatrist scheming to do him in. Banner tries to talk Wallace down off his mental ledge. Are you even sure you had shock treatments? But Wallace is gone again, hallucinating a charging elephant and then hallucinating the Hulk again. The hallucinations and false flashbacks continue even as Banner tries to bring Wallace back from wherever he is in his head. Wallace then pulls out the forty-five again and takes off. Banner has one last chance to convince Robert that his friend is going to harm himself and others if Robert won't reveal where he's likely to be going. When Robert hesitates, Banner reminds him how Ernest Hemingway ended his own life. If Wallace thinks he's living Hemingway's life, this is going to go down the same way. And finally, Robert talks. Banner catches a ride to the local marina where Dr. Stanley's houseboat is moored. He runs into the boat and finds Dr. Stanley and Mrs. Wallace? Well, apparently she got a note from her husband telling her to be here. 
Banner warns them that Tom Wallace is out for blood, but they already know that because in walks Tom Wallace waving his gun around, they are his hostages. At about this time, the police swarm the marina, having been tipped off by Robert. Guess who else shows up? Helpful Jack McGee, but he's only interested in Banner. In the boat, Dr. Stanley, Banner, and Mrs. Wallace are trying to figure out how to help Tom Wallace, but he interrupts every attempt to have a conversation by agitatedly waving the gun around. The police are trying to negotiate with Wallace since he now has three hostages and a weapon, but his hallucinations are getting worse. Wallace orders everyone topside. Benner has to figure out how to stay out of McGee's sight. While he's doing that, Dr. Stanley and Mrs. Wallace manage to get off the boat and behind the police barricade. McGee just wants Banner, and he pesters the cops about it enough that he almost gets himself arrested. Banner tries to talk to Wallace again. He thinks Wallace is suffering from a brain tumor and needs immediate medical attention. When Wallace continues waving the gun around, Banner grapples with him and pushes him back down into the cabin of the boat, and that's where the police finally fire a gas grenade. The fight-or-flight impulse strikes, and Banner is once again the Hulk. He carefully carries Wallace out of the gas-filled cabin, and when the police start shooting something other than gas grenades at him, the Hulk starts throwing smaller boats at them and then goes for a swim himself, disappearing from sight. Wallace is taken to the hospital, where it's discovered that Banner's diagnosis was right on the money. With the tumor removed, he is on his way to recovering, but the description he gives the police sketch artist of Banner doesn't really match up with what Banner looks like. But, you know, dude just had a brain tumor removed, so Banner's trail is once again cold, much to McGee's chagrin. Banner pays Robert one last visit. He left his things at Robert's place when Wallace took them on safari, and Robert held on to those things without saying anything to the police about them. Once again, Banner hits the road on foot, unaware that he may have managed to undo the harm that the Hulk did in the first place. The End this episode of The Incredible Hulk guest stars Sherman Hemsley. The Jeffersons was still very much a primetime hit at this point, and it had been on the air for four years already and would continue through 1985. So, yeah, this may be a case of stunt casting, but it's totally valid. If you can get fans of a high-profile sitcom actor to tune in and sample The Incredible Hulk, why not do it? Both shows were on CBS, by the way, so if, even if you consider this stunt casting... It was very strategic inside baseball stunt casting. James Wainwright guest stars as Tom Wallace. James was a year away from carving out a very minor bit of sci-fi infamy for himself as Simon Quaid, the recurring bad guy throughout the very, very short run of Beyond Westworld on CBS. James also appeared in The Sixth Sense, Kung Fu, MASH, Chips, Magnum P.I., Stingray, and Hunter, among many others. We lost James in 1999. Now, let's talk cameos. You know how a lot of the early Marvel Cinematic Universe movies have this unspoken game of spot the Stan Lee cameo going on? Well, get ready for a sighting even more rare than that. We have Jack Kirby, co-creator of the Hulk, as the police sketch artist in the last hospital scene. Skip Holmeyer guest stars as Dr. Robert Stanley. Skip is old-school Hollywood personified. Beginning his career in the 1940s as a child star, Skip racked up an impressive number of credits. Now, we tend to focus on genre credits on Retrogram, so get ready. He was in three episodes of Ziv Television's Science Fiction Theater and two episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents in the 1950s. 
He starred in his own series, Dan Raven, in 1960, and then you can find him guest starring in episodes of The Outer Limits, The Addams Family, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Mission Impossible, two episodes of Star Trek. Uh, my favorite of these two is The Way to Eden, where he plays Dr. Severin, a character who may be the first anti-vaxxer in sci-fi TV history. Circle of Fear, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Project UFO, and even the TV movie The Wild Wild West Revisited. We lost Skip in 2017. Thalmas Rasalala guest stars as Deputy Police Chief Harry Simon. Okay, my bad, he is not the department PIO. We have another Star Trek connection here, as you might remember him as Captain Donald Varley of the doomed starship USS Yamato in the Star Trek The Next Generation episode Contagion in that show's second season. You know, the episode that was about computer viruses before anyone knew what a computer virus was. He also had guest roles in the original Twilight Zone and Mission Impossible, The Jeffersons, Lou Grant, Roots, The Greatest American Hero. He had a recurring role on What's Happening, and he was a regular on the late 80s reboot of Dragnet. You may also have seen him in movies such as Blackula, Cornbread Earl and Me, Bulletproof, and New Jack City, among many others. I always like seeing him show up because he's one of those actors who has this dignified bearing that just classes the place up to no end. Sadly, we lost Thomas in 1991. Now, I love the scene where the Hulk is kind of briefly mesmerized by the spin dryers at the laundromat. For a moment, I was thinking, oh, wait a minute, so this is how Banner always has clothes that will fit him when he de-hulks, but no, that's not it. Now, okay, the operator cutting in on the payphone. Man, you talk about something that someone born after the 90s is simply not going to understand. I laughed out loud at that because even I had forgotten that that was a thing that could happen. Though if that operator is sitting there on that call listening to someone at a payphone impersonate a cop and the operator says nothing about it, uh, I've got questions. That scene where Banner has picked up a whole sack of glass bottles off the beach and then takes them for the refund. Okay, again, we have a another very 1970s, 1980s thing happening for starters. I'm not sure very many people do that with cans or bottles anymore. I mean, we just put them in for the recycling. Now, the other thing is, the woman who gives him his money, she tells him, next time, wash out the bottles, will you? She says this without moving her lips. I mean, talk about burying the lead. We're worried about the escapee from the mental hospital and completely ignoring the fact that there's a telepath working on the beachfront, just beaming her thoughts straight into people's brains like it's a perfectly normal thing to do. This is a really solid episode of The Incredible Hulk, and it's a rare case where the presence of Banner, and therefore the Hulk, is what causes the crisis that Banner has to solve by the end of the show. It's not like he's stumbled into some criminal plot or into someone else's crisis, which is a very typical setup for an episode of The Incredible Hulk. If he hadn't been there to begin with, Wallace probably would have been carted off to the hospital and hopefully even correctly diagnosed and treated properly. But because of Banner's presence things get a lot more complicated, and that's kind of a neat change from the usual.
Dolls Tales of the Unexpected, Season 1, Episode 2, Mrs. Bixby and the Colonel's Coat. Aired Saturday, March 31, 1979 on Anglia TV. Roald Dahl both introduces the story and laments the limitations of a writer of short stories. And then it's time to meet the Bixbys. Mrs. Bixby is preparing to take a weekend-long trip to visit her aunt, and Mr. Bixby is grumbling about the frequency and cost of these visits. The next day she's off to the airport, but she's not going to see her aunt. She's spending a weekend with the Colonel, the Colonel to whom she is not married. On Monday she has to return to her humdrum life, but at the airport the Colonel's chauffeur presents her with a gift in a rather large box. Unable to wait to find out what it is, Mrs. Bixby ducks into the ladies' room at the airport to unwrap it, and it's a fur coat. It's quite an expensive one at that. But there's also a note from the colonel basically giving Mrs. Bixby the push-off. He won't be able to see her any more. They both knew it couldn't last anyway. Just say the coat is a present from your aunt. Once her brain slips back into gear after the shock wears off, she realizes that she'd built this whole legend about her aunt being bedridden and broke. There's no way that this entirely fictional woman could afford a coat like that. In a panic about how to explain the coat, she takes it into a pawn shop on the ride home and leaves it there with no name and no description to tie it back to her. She puts only 50 pounds on it as the value, despite it obviously being worth much more than that, and she promises to come back the next day to retrieve it. The shop owner wasn't born yesterday, and he can tell that something's fishy here. He advises her not to lose the ticket that corresponds to her coat. With as little documentation as she is provided, anyone finding that ticket could come in and pick up the coat. Just before dinner that night, she tells Mr. Bixby that she found the ticket in the seat of her taxi cab. And as for everything else, she plays dumb. Mr. Bixby said that he better go redeem it tomorrow. After all, a pawn shop is no place for a lady. Whoops. He goes in the next day to retrieve whatever it is, but he won't tell his wife what it is, and agonizingly, she's still having to pretend she doesn't know what it is. She heads down to his dental practice to pick it up, and she's alarmed when he just hands her a mink stole. He says that's what was in the box. And now he has to get back to work, and he'll be home late due to work. Nine o'clock, maybe even ten o'clock. But hey, enjoy that little strip of fur. He all but chases her out of his office. All the while, she's trying to conceal her disappointment and her shock. When she reaches the elevator, still in that state of shock, another woman asks her to hold the elevator. It's her husband's dental hygienist going out to lunch wearing what must be said to be a very lovely and very expensive-looking mink coat. I'm guessing she's going to be working late, too. The End So, here we are back on Anglia TV, and back on this theme of stories with twist endings. It's kind of like a spiritual successor to Orson Welles' Great Mysteries, except that at this point, very early in the life of this series, this show is still known as Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected, and Dahl himself appeared at the beginning of each episode to introduce the tale that was about to unfold, which, at least in season one, was based on one of his short stories. Now, both the inclusion of Dahl's name in the show's title and his involvement in the series would fade over time. Beginning in the second season, original stories were commissioned from outside writers, though the idea was that they would still generally stick to the idea of a surprise twist in the story. Now, that was the idea, but the execution was occasionally different. 
The show was only in its third season, the last time an actual Roald Dahl story was adapted for the screen, and after that it was entirely the work of other writers. The longer the series went on, the further away it crept from its original formulation, even dropping Dahl's name from the title. Still, with international filming locations and frequent appearances by American actors, Tales of the Unexpected was pretty much pre-sold in America, where it showed up on USA Network, among other places, and that market's demand for more episodes and new episodes is why 112 half-hour episodes of Tales of the Unexpected were produced before the plug was finally pulled in the late 80s. Interestingly, this was the third time that Mrs. Bixby and the Colonel's Coat was adapted for television. It was first dramatized in 1955 as the first episode of the sixth season of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, starring Audrey Meadows as Mrs. Bixby and Les Tremaine, 20 years before he was mentor in Shazam, as Dr. Bixby, and Stephen Chase as the Colonel. It was adapted again in 1965 as an episode of the BBC's 30-minute theatre series, starring Shelley Winters as Mrs. Bixby, Neil McCallum as Dr. Bixby, and Bill Shine as the Colonel, with Roald Dahl himself again providing voiceover narration. Now, as far as Tales of the Unexpected is concerned, Dahl wound up introducing his own material on screen because Peter Ustinov was not available to be the host of the show. This second episode saw quite a drop in ratings from the series premiere a week earlier, but don't blame that on the story. Blame it on stiff competition from the Eurovision Song Contest that same weekend. Oh, and this series is not to be confused with Quinn Martin's Tales of the Unexpected, which ran for a mere eight episodes in 1977. When that series was sold into syndication in the Europe and the UK, it had to be retitled because the UK already had a Tales of the Unexpected. So the Quinn Martin series was retitled Twist in the Tale for international sale. It had a stompin' theme tune, though. More on that show another time. Three shows worthy of glowing reviews. Okay, bad choice of words with the whole Three Mile Island thing, sorry. Three shows that are wildly different from each other, except, well, now wait a minute. Mrs. Bixby has a fur, well, she had a fur coat. And Servalan has a fur coat. Can this help us determine which one was the better show? Now, cleaning a fur coat is a pain in the butt no matter what kind it is. Servalan's wearing white fur in the underground lair of a bunch of treacherous space vikings, and amazingly, we never see a speck of dirt on the thing. So this might be evidence that it's some kind of space fur from space rabbits, I don't know. Whatever, it just doesn't bother to get dirty under any circumstances, and uh, so sorry, Mrs. Bixby, I, I think in, in every respect you lose out there, not that you got to keep the coat anyway. <clears throat> And really, we can do some comparative Bixbyology here, since we have Mrs. Bixby and Bill Bixby, no relation. This one's a much closer race. Bill Bixby's sheer earnestness is a huge asset in The Incredible Hulk, which is a show that could, on so many occasions, wind up seeming very silly. On the other hand, we have Julie Harris as Mrs. Bixby running a huge gamut of emotions from betrayer to betrayed. And it's really up to the audience to decide whether or not Mrs. Bixby is someone we actually need to feel sorry for. The real question I have after watching all three of these is, okay, who was the lucky person in the prop department who took Jack Kirby's sketch pad that had a Jack Kirby original on it?
The Retrogram podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by Forget the Whale and Her Melon, also licensed under Creative Commons. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to the Logbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you love Retrogram, become one of them. Every little bit helps keep the Logbook.com and its copious podcasts and videocasts going. You can be like Philip, Kevin, Ferg, Darwin, Cindy, Paul, Mark, Charles, and Ashley, and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook. If monthly contributions are not your thing, and I totally get it, maybe you're saving up for a space rabbit fur coat that you saw in a pawn shop, you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash the logbook as well. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, other clothing, and household goods, even face masks, which, you know, hey, we may still wind up needing at some point. Anything with our logo on it from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com with designs featuring everything from classic Odyssey 2 games and classic space missions to, yes, you guessed it, hashtag floaty robot buddies. You can order all sorts of things from Amazon and eBay through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store. And if you like watching stuff, feel free to sign up for Paramount Plus or Hulu through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps The Logbook and Retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.